0: And John is writing to them about this momentous turning point in redemptive history. It was the unrecoverable, cataclysmic end of the old covenant system and the establishing of the everlasting new covenant through Jesus, the Lamb of God. All right, friends, welcome. We are diving into the book of Revelation. If this is the first episode you're listening to, stop. Go back, listen to the other episodes first, and this will make more sense. In this episode, we're going to look into the author's intent. Who was he writing to? What time frame was he suggesting? And why? What was his purpose for writing this? Most of the scholars that I've read believe that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation Justin Martyr, writing in AD 135, credits the book to John the Apostle. Melito of Sardis, writing in the mid-second century, also believes, also cites John the Apostle. However, uh, there is another theory, because Revelation's Greek style differs quite a bit from the other books that John is credited with. So some scholars think that it was written by another John called John the Elder, They would also credit 2nd and 3rd John being by the same author. And these scholars cite another tradition that began in the 3rd century that attributes Revelation to John the Elder. But I'm not sure that matters. The earliest church tradition favors the traditional view of John the Apostle. The later tradition favors John the Elder. Uh, Either way, the church fathers accepted this book into the canon and believed it to be inspired. And I think as we get into it, we will also see that it is an amazing book that is truly, truly inspired. Uh, As far as when the book was written, this is actually a pretty important debate because the Preter's view is really built on the idea that it was written before Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, the more dominant view is that Revelation was written in AD 96, or in the mid-90s. Now, a lot of this later dating apparently revolves around Irenaeus, who was the Bishop of Lyons from 120 AD to 202. However, the same Irenaeus, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but the same guy, he also claimed that Jesus' ministry lasted nearly 20 years, from the age of 30 until the age of 50. So the proponents for an earlier dating bring that out to say, look, he's really not a reliable source to base the dating of this book around. One of the other issues that some people have brought up is that if the book were written in 95-96 AD, at that point the Apostle John would have been very elderly, probably also in his 90s. And we have some historical records that uh, record John being at church meetings in his 90s, so he would have been alive, but being very frail and not capable of speaking a lot, but only speaking a few words in the church meetings that he was at. So from that perspective, an earlier dating also kind of makes more sense where he would have had the strength and been more physically capable of recording this revelation. The scholar that I mentioned in the last episode, Kenneth Gentry, wrote a whole book on this topic called Before Jerusalem Fell. And it's the whole book is about... Um, the dating of the book of Revelation. So, if you're interested in diving deeper in that, you can check that out. Let's move on and talk for a moment about John's audience. Who was he writing this book to? Uh, Let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, these are people john's writing to people that he knows personally he identifies himself as their brother as their partner in the tribulation uh, you know that they're going through this suffering together so john's writing to christians who are suffering and he's writing to people that he knows personally and the letter starts off with messages to these seven churches and there are lots of theories about the letters to the churches Uh, Some people have divided them into dispensations of time, and again, a little bit like the historicists, they're always trying to align them and say, okay, this was um, to the Christians in this era, and this is God speaking to the Christians in this era, this was the Christians during the Reformation, this is the Christians, you know, in the 21st century. And that method uh, also, as we mentioned before, with the historicist timeline, also requires kind of every generation of Christians a reshuffling of who is what church and what era. To me, the, the most beneficial way for us to read it, especially as we're just going for broad strokes, trying to understand an, the, the overall arc of the book, the overall story, and the message of the book uh, without getting bogged down, let's just assume that these are seven actual physical churches. I think that is a very productive way for us to read the letters because just like, you know, the temptation might be to think, oh, well, if that message was to that church, then it doesn't apply to me. But why? there's no reason for us to think that. Why would we think that? We don't think that when we read Ephesians. We don't think that when we read Corinthians. You know, just because the letters of Paul were written to the Christians in Ephesus or Corinth or Colossae, We don't throw away those letters and go, oh, those don't apply to us. There are things in those letters that may be cultural and may have a a cultural context to them or a time frame context to them. For example, Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth, and he says, there are divisions among you. Some say, I follow Apollos, and some say, I follow Paul. Well, you know, probably in our modern day churches, we don't have people saying, I follow Apollos or I follow Paul but we do have people saying, I follow this high-profile pastor, or I like this high-profile pastor. I belong to this denomination. I belong to that denomination. So perhaps the specifics of the division are different, but the general theme and idea of Christians being united in Christ And needing to find their union in Christ, that hasn't changed. That's still a universal message. So in the same way, if we look at these letters to seven churches, we can still say, okay, that may have been to that church at that time, but there are still things that apply to me. And of course, when we talk about a church, we don't want to read our understanding of what a 21st century church is back into the text. So If you think of a church as a building with a steeple on top and stained glass, uh, stop thinking that way, because the church is the assembly of God's people. It's the called out ones of Jesus. It's like the political party of Jesus, like the Senate of God, administrating the kingdom of God on the earth. We represent the government and the reign of God, and it's our responsibility to bring God's reign and to manifest God's kingdom on the earth. And so the church is the assembly of the people who belong to Jesus, the family of God. And it's not a building with stained glass. It's not a building with a steeple on it. So when he's writing to these churches in different places, he's writing to the assembly of the believers in those places. He's not sending a letter out that's going to arrive at a big building and people are going to get together and read it. At this point, People are still probably meeting at, in homes, mostly. So that's his audience. He's writing to believers in the first century that he knows personally, people who are suffering, his partners in this affliction that comes with being a Christian in the first century. And he's writing this message to seven groups of believers in different physical locations, And he's writing to show them the things that must soon take place. Remember from chapter one, verse one, he's writing to them to encourage them because they're in this time of severe persecution. And he's writing to show them what is soon going to take place. So let's talk about, we've looked at who's writing, when he's writing, his audience. Let's talk about his purpose in writing. John is writing to first century readers. So it's highly unlikely that he is writing about events thousands of years off in the future. What was the contemporary expectation of John? What was the contemporary expectation of his audience? Imagine a letter from the Apostle Paul writing a letter to Christians about the way that they should use the internet or the way that they should uh, go to a modern football game. It's pretty inconceivable to us that Paul would send a letter to first century Christians that they wouldn't know what to do with. And it would just be, hey, just just set this aside for 2,000 years, and Christians who are living 20 centuries from now will know what to do with this information. So I think to if we really want to get a handle on what this book means, we would do very well to try and understand what it meant to the original author, John, and what it meant to the original readers, to try and put ourselves in their shoes and, of course, that doesn't mean just because it was a message intended for them that it doesn't have relevance for us. As I mentioned before, that's how it is with all of, all of the epistles, with all of Scripture, really. If you look at the, the prophets in the Old Testament and the history and the, the Old Covenants, or the Gospel of Luke, where Luke is writing for Theophilus, or Acts, also written for Theophilus. Are we going to say because Luke and Acts were written to Theophilus that they're not profitable for us? No, of course not doesn't mean just because those things weren't written to us that they have no meaning for us. They're full of meaning for us. They're, they're profoundly meaningful for us. They're at the core of life's biggest questions. Why are we here? Why do we exist? What's the purpose of life? The scriptures answer life's most profound, most important questions. But if we're going to understand it, We need to understand what it meant to its original audience. The other reason I don't think John is writing about things happening super far off in the future where he would be kind of like taunting his first century readers that, you know, hey, none of this is going to happen in your lifetime. I'm writing you this super freaky, super scary letter, but don't worry. It's all coming 20 centuries from now. The other reason that's difficult for me to accept is because of how often revelations suggest soon and near and shortly. So let's look for a moment at the time frame suggested by the author. In Revelation 1.1, he says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place." In 1.3, he says, "...the time is near." In chapter 2, 16, he says, "'I will come to you soon.'" In chapter 3, 11, he says, "'I am coming soon.'" In chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7, it says that there was an angel who raised his right hand and swore that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled." just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And what is the mystery of God? Well, we know from Paul's writings that the mystery of God is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews of the kingdom of God, Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the angel is proclaiming that the time of this fulfillment of the mystery of God is going to happen soon. Colossians 1.27 says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the angel is swearing that The mystery of God is about to come to pass, and that mystery is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the promises of God, into the kingdom of God. In Revelation 22, 6 and 7, he says, He has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7 says, And behold, I am coming soon. In Revelation 22.12, he says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. In 22.20, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. So in the book of Revelation, it opens with a time frame. The things that must soon take place and it closes with the time frame surely i am coming soon so he john when he opens the letter when he closes the letter throughout the letter he's constantly reminding his readers that this is going to happen soon there's no way that john could have made it more emphatic to the believers of his day it wasn't there's no way that they would have read this and thought oh this is for believers generations from now. John was making it clear that this was going to happen soon. So much so that even in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So, he's coming soon, and this is why it was important for us to look at Matthew 24, before we came into Revelation, because it helps us understand in the mind of the original readers, in the Hebrew Jewish mind, his coming and coming on the clouds is talking about a coming in judgment. And if you didn't listen to the podcast on Matthew 24, I encourage you to go check that out because we looked at that in some detail. And we're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but the point I'm getting at right now is that anyone reading this book when John would have written it, would have understood he's talking about something coming soon. The time is at hand, it is near. Uh, in contrast to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel is told to seal up his vision. John is told in Revelation 22:10 not to seal up the words of the prophecy, for the time is near. Now I know sometimes we default to thinking, well, God's concept of what's near is different than our concept of what's near because to God, a thousand years is as a day. And that is true, that's from 2 Peter two eight. With the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. But we have to remember that that's describing what a thousand years is like from the Lord's perspective. To the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. But John is writing to a group of believers who are under persecution, telling them that I'm writing to you about things that are going to happen soon. These things are going to happen shortly. And as we go through the book, we'll see that the circumstances he describes and the events described in Revelation fit the circumstances that those believers were living in. So as we get into it, you'll see why it's reasonable to believe that this was, in fact, written for and to believers in the first century, so that when he says in Revelation 1-7, those who pierced him will look upon him, we can begin to understand that he's talking about an event in the first century, like we talked about in Matthew 24, when Jesus came in judgment. The coming on the clouds, that language, is the language of judgment. Judgment. So he's not trying to paint a frightening picture for believers of nuclear war and attack helicopters that that is, you know, thousands of years in the future, but he's speaking to them about relevant events and circumstances that they saw unfolding around them and as they saw their brothers and sisters and their friends being martyred, being tortured, being persecuted for their faith. He was speaking to them about things that they needed to know, things that the Lord specifically gave him to reveal, to make known to his servants, not to hide, not to confuse or to puzzle his reader, but to reveal to his reader, to make known to his reader, to uncover these things, to encourage his readers so that they would understand what God was doing in and around them. Now, as we consider John's purpose in writing Revelation, the other thing to keep in mind is that John is different. And when we look at the Gospel of John, we see that 90% of the content of the Gospel of John is different than the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I still remember my New Testament professor, he would always say, John is, and he would let the class fill in the blank, different, and he would say that so often that the class just got in the habit of, he would always start that sentence and we would finish it. He would say, John is different, and John, the gospel of John, does not have an Olivet discourse like we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21. John doesn't have that. And so one way of understanding Revelation is to realize that John, in his own unique way, as it was revealed to him from the Lord, is he is using this apocalyptic style of literature to convey what Matthew, Mark, and Luke conveyed in their Gospels, and their Olivet Discourse. Just like John tells the Incarnation story very differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke, we have the very detailed account of how Christ was born, and it was a time of a census, and they had to go to Bethlehem. Matthew and Mark add their own details, but in John, we don't get any of that. In John, we get, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. And so John has his own completely unique way of communicating these incredible truths as the Holy Spirit carries him along and guides him, and he writes his account. And so he's writing this account to encourage his readers at the moment of their greatest persecution, that the end of their persecutors was coming. He's inviting them to be faithful, to hold on, to stay faithful, that their faithfulness was accomplishing something that far outweighed their suffering. The kingdom of God was spreading to all peoples all over the earth. And John is writing to them about this momentous turning point in redemptive history. It was the unrecoverable, cataclysmic end of the old covenant system and the establishing of the everlasting new covenant through Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so John's using this apocalyptic style to communicate these truths that we've looked at in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So John receives this revelation from God, and he's using the images and the pictures and the symbolism that God was speaking to him to record these events that were getting ready to unfold very soon. And the language he's using is this apocalyptic style of language, and we looked at some of this when we looked at Matthew chapter 24. But remember, we looked at Psalm chapter 18 that David addressed to the Lord when God delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And in this psalm, we see this amazing imagery that uh, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord thundered from the heavens. The channels of the sea were seen before him. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of waters. And it's this image of God coming, and he's riding on an angel, and the mountains melt before him, and smoke comes out of his nostrils, and he bows the heavens, and he comes down on a cherub. And we talked about how this is David describing God's involvement in his protection and and in his ascension to the throne, that David is giving glory to God, that he recognizes it is God who sustained him, it is God who protected him, it is God who gave him victory. But God did not literally ride on a cherub and come down and sweep David out of many waters. That didn't happen. But God did deliver David, and David is using this beautiful, poetic, uh, kind of apocalyptic language to communicate it. When we looked at matthew we also looked at hebrews chapter 12 um, from verses 18 to 24 it talks about receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and he's comparing the experience of the believers to the experience of the hebrews when they had come out of egypt to mount sinai he says you have not come to what may be touched that means you're not you haven't approached a physical mountain like the hebrews did coming to mount sinai You haven't come to a blazing fire, darkness and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you haven't come to this physical mountain. You have come to a spiritual place. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn. And so he's contrasting the new and the old covenant. And then down in verse 26, he says, at that time when Moses got the law, his voice shook the earth. That's saying God's voice shook Mount Sinai when he was giving the people the law. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this is an indication of what is coming, what John describes in Revelation. It's the shaking of the heavens and the earth And it's the complete removal of the Old Testament and of the temple system. Look with me at Micah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the son of Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this is about Samaria and Jerusalem. He says, Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And so this is talking about a judgment event that came upon Samaria and Jerusalem he's describing the judgment of God that's coming against the people for them violating the covenant. And so when John begins to use this language, the Hebrew mind would have associated God coming on the clouds and they would have known this is talking about a judgment event that is coming soon. And when you take that and you lay it on top of the events that happened in the days of the people who would have received this letter, it makes perfect sense what John was writing about. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 19 for another example of this apocalyptic language that John is using. He says, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the hearts of the Egyptians will melt within them. And he goes down, uh, I'm skipping down a little bit. He says, the waters of the sea will be dried up and the river will be parched. And he's describing this judgment that came upon Egypt. Now, the Lord did not physically show up riding a cloud and come to Egypt, but the Lord did bring this judgment upon Egypt, and that is what Isaiah was talking about. And John taps in to this Hebrew style of literature and of communicating. It wasn't literally God in the clouds, but it was God communicating to the people, listen, When Assyria comes and destroys Egypt, I want you to know I was the one behind that. So in the same way, he's telling them, look, when the Romans come and destroy the temple, I want you to know I'm the one that's behind that. That is my judgment coming for the rejection of the Messiah. And then later, we see the defeat of Rome in the book of Revelation. So he's writing to these persecuted Christians saying, look, the people who are persecuting you most severely, which were the Jews and the Roman government, he says, judgment is coming upon them. And he's writing to encourage them to be strong, to hang in there, that God is going to bring justice, God is going to repay them and that their suffering was going to accomplish something so glorious, so important, that they needed to endure. Look with me at that verse I mentioned already, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. And as we talked about in Matthew 24, sometimes when we look at a verse like, All the earth it's easy for us to read back into the text our 21st century understanding of what all the earth meant. Like we talked about in Luke chapter 2, where it says Caesar Augustus declared that all the world should be registered. Well, we know that Caesar Augustus was not registering people in North and South America and many other parts of the earth, but when he says that all the world he's talking about the Roman world, the known world. And we can see this same word is in that verse we just read in Revelation 1-7, that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Well, that Greek word earth is uh, ge, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but ge is the English transliteration of that word. And I'm pulling from the lexicon on Blue Letter Bible, this is the Strong's lexicon, and that word can be translated earth, but it can also be translated land, like a country or a local area, a limited area. Not It's not the word cosmos, which means the entire globe. So we could translate Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the land will wail on account of him. So, Sometimes when we're reading this, we're really tempted to read our own understanding back into the text, but we want to be really careful as we go to try and understand as best we can what the Lord was communicating to John and what John is communicating to his readers and how they would have received it. So as we consider John's style and his intent, the situation he was writing in, the people he was writing to, I want to throw something else out in closing. And there's a style of writing in scripture called a chiastic arc, and it's easier to show in a picture than it is to describe with words, but basically a chiastic arc follows a pattern where it says, line upon line, A, B, C, D, C, B, A. So it's like a mirror. So the two A lines are similar, the two B lines are similar, the two C lines are similar, and the core... Or the most important part of the passage is on the D line. So it would be A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And in English, generally when we're writing something, we like to put the most important ideas at the beginning of a paragraph and at the end of a paragraph. But this Hebrew style flips it entirely. So it puts the most important idea, the core idea, sandwiched between other ideas that kind of mirror one another as they go toward the core idea and away from the core idea and you can see this pattern throughout scripture it was a kind of a literary style of the bible you can see it in the genesis flood narrative you can see it in some of the teachings of jesus you can see it in the book of Joshua from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 9. In fact, if you look up a chiastic arc, it's spelled C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C. You can find lots of examples of this pattern of writing. And so one theory of interpreting Revelation is to see the book as a chiastic arc, And it starts with a greeting, line A, seven churches, line B, seven seals, line C, seven trumpets, the angel and the two witnesses on line D, and then the center idea, the most important idea, which could be identified as line E in the chiastic arc, uh, the middle part, which is the woman, the dragon, and the male child. So that would be the arrival of Jesus. And then going back out, working our way out of the chiastic arc. So we went A, B, C, D, E as our center line into the chiastic arc. So now we're going to go D C B. A, going out of the Chiastic Ark, two beasts, the angels, the seven bowls, that would be the, the second line D. The destruction of Babylon as the second line C. The bride as uh, the second line B, which is mirroring the seven churches, and then the epilogue, the ending, which mirrors the greeting. So you get the introduction, the first vision, second vision, third vision, fourth vision, fifth vision, sixth vision, seventh vision and then the epilogue. And so you have these seven visions that kind of mirror one another, one, two, three, mirroring five, six, seven, with the fourth vision in the middle, which is the followers of the lamb or the beast. The, the You have people following the lamb, you have people following the beast. And so that's really interesting to look at as a pattern of understanding Sometimes when we're trying to interpret a literary format that we're not familiar with, it causes struggles for us. I remember in his book on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis talks about that the style of poetry that was used by the Hebrew psalmist was the style of echoing or repeating the same idea. And he said he... He felt bad for preachers who he heard trying to extract meaning from the same two ideas one after another, not realizing that that was done on purpose. And in the same way, we see the reflection of these seven seals of judgment, seven trumpets that bring judgment, bowls of wrath that bring judgment. And it's not necessarily to be dissected as all, okay, this is, uh, you know— three different separate events, but it could be that it's a retelling of the same thing over and over and over, this this theme of the the seven judgments over three times that this is a perfect judgment it's a complete judgment and so that's just something else to consider but now we're going to move on we've talked about the author's intent the time frame he was writing who he was writing to now we're going to start looking at the leading characters in this story what's the dramatic flow of the story and what is the outcome what's the result of this story i'll talk to you soon thank you for listening